Hello, listeners, and happy Friday the 13th. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Normally, this would be our listener's episode, but unfortunately, Maria has a family matter that she needs to focus on, and so we decided to leave our listener stories for next month. I believe we only had like two or three stories, so it would have been short. Um, This way, the next episode will be a little bit longer, more stories, and give you guys more time to submit some stories. But because it's Friday the 13th, I didn't want to do nothing. I still wanted to have something. So today you get just me sharing some creepy stories that I found on the interwebs. Now, bear with me. I've never done an episode all by myself. And I've certainly never shared creepy, scary stories to seemingly no one since this is just me staring at my computer at the moment. (laughs) And I gotta say, I'm a little sad I won't have anyone here to react to these stories because I tried to find some good spooky ones. Um, Either way, I hope you guys like it and uh, let's dive in. So the first one is called Distorted Warning Signals. Now, I can't remember if we do a disclosure warning at the beginning, um, but this is a listener stories. There might be things in these stories that are um, traumatic or gory or whatnot. So listen at your own expense. Okay. When I got the first one, I was literally seconds away from stepping onto the plane when a call from unknown blared from my cell phone. It was a ringtone I hadn't heard before, one I was pretty sure hadn't come with the phone. Normally I wouldn't have stopped to answer it, but I was expecting a call about a job I had interviewed for the previous week. I took a deep breath in and accepted the call. Hello? Do not get on the plane. A woman's voice garbled and strange, as if her vocal cords had been shredded and she was trying desperately to choke out speech. Despite the unnerving, fractured quality of her voice, her tone was insistent and eerily calm. Then the call ended. I froze. I had always had a slight phobia of air travel, and something about this call just... There's no way I was about to get on a seven-hour flight now. I turned around and headed toward the food court. I'd just get another flight later in the afternoon, I figured. I watched from the airport Starbucks three hours later as every TV in the terminal lit up with the crash footage of the plane I should have been on. No survivors. Not a single one. I tried to trace the call. So did the police. But there was nothing to trace. There was no evidence my phone had ever received a call around this time. They analyzed phone records, incoming and outgoing communication to my phone. Nothing. I wasn't making it up. I couldn't have been. That wasn't the only call. Throughout the years, there were few and far between, but always right, and I always listened. Do not go on that blind date tonight. Five months later, my would-be date was convicted of killing four women, all with my hair color and build found them in a shallow grave about 250 feet from the diner he offered to take me to. Do not drive to the concert tonight. 
18-wheeler lost control and plowed into a line of cars. Every driver crushed. Every driver killed. In that stretch of freeway, I would have been driving down. No matter if I got a new phone, if I moved across the country, the calls would still come. I could almost feel the presence of whatever it was, whatever it is, watching over me. I imagined being at the bottom of the freezing ocean, still strapped into my coach section plane seat, or being in that mass grave across from the diner, or watching an 18-wheeler skidding toward my car, knowing death was imminent, and I'd get this tightness in my chest. I'd think about how thin that line was, how close I'd gotten. If I hadn't had a job interview I was waiting to hear back from, I'd have never listened to that first call, and that would have, be, that would have been it for me. It always felt like something was coming for me, but there was always this, this fractured, warped voice with these calls that never seemed to exist after I heard them. Self-destructing warning signals rotting away before my eyes, and I was alive. I had a bad feeling about this cruise. I had planned it as a girl's week out with some of my old friends from college and was looking forward to a week in the tropics in the dead of winter. But part of me could almost sense that the call was coming. Maybe I'd watched Titanic one too many times, but there was a little nagging fear from the start. I hoped it would be fine, but I knew that if something was going to happen, I'd get the call. I'd know. Now, a week before I'm set to go on the cruise, after stepping into my apartment, after returning from dinner with a friend, I notice my cell has a message from unknown. They'd, they've never had to leave a message before. Haven't checked it all night. Damn it, and I really wanted to go on that cruise too. Ah oh well. Not worth whatever horrific fate awaited me in that cold, dark ocean. I click play message and feel my stomach drop as I listen to the voice sounding horrifically distorted as if it emanates from a throat slashed to ribbons, crackling with more urgency than ever before. I look around my apartment as the voice on the phone repeats the same phrase over and over again. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Do not come home after dinner tonight. And unfortunately, they left it on that cliffhanger. Something about that story reminds me of, like, Final Destination, where death is clearly coming for this person no matter what they do. Kind of sucks. <laughs> well, this next story is called Blink. It has nothing to do with the Doctor Who episode, unfortunately. But... If you do want to be creeped out and you have access to watching Doctor Who, I highly recommend that episode. You don't need to have seen any of the other episodes to get it. Anyway, here we go. This is creepy. Here we are again. The cold wooden floor is my seat of choice. My lower back and knees start to ache only about 30 minutes in. The cold sweat keeps making my feet slide away from me on the slick floor and I keep jerking them back to my body. Already, a crick begins to settle in my neck from the tension of stretching it up to see over my bed that's between the window and I. There is a red irritation on the inside of each bicep by, from wrapping my arms around my knees and pulling them into my chest. Worst of all, my eyes. My eyes are dry and feel like they're on fire. They look like a red lightning storm's raging in my pupils. 
As I count down, I get so excited when I get to one so that I can blink and get that millisecond of relief. After a while, blinking makes my eyes burn even worse. Three, two, one, blink. There he is. Same spot as last night. His head cocked so much to his left that his face is almost upside down. Jet black, medium length hair that dangles from the contortion of his face and blows slightly in the wind and rain. He boasts the same outfit, a black sports jacket and a white v-neck underneath. The jacket has a few rips and tears while the white shirt has turned almost to a rust color with black and red smudges on it. His eyes were solid black, so much so that I wasn't sure if they were always open and always watching or always closed. Not sure if they were empty voids in the place of big beautiful eyes or if they just seemed that way from the dark distance. Finally, his big unwavering smile, not quite the ever famously referred to Chelsea smile. His top and bottom rows of teeth didn't touch, allowing me to see the black pit in his mouth. I always expected to see something crawl out of there, but I never did. He never moved an inch as long as you watched him. Three, two, one, blink. He's still there, of course, still stiff as a board, but his hands are now flat up against my window. His long, pointy fingers seem to span the width of the window. He's waiting. Waiting for me to close my eyes or look away just for a second. This had become somewhat of a routine for me at this point. I've played this game with him many nights. I had a system. When the countdown ended and I could blink, I would click on the flashlight shining right at him simultaneously to my eyes blinking. When I opened my eyes, I would quickly turn it back off. I'm not sure why, but this kept him from moving. Maybe he thought the light meant someone was still watching him. It worked, so I didn't really care why it did. Three, two, one, blink. When I open my eyes and click off my flashlight, I see he's still there. Still in the exact same position, but with a slight difference. The tips of his fingers were bowed in so that his needle-like fingertips are making a scratching motion against the window. Not bad, he doesn't seem as aggressive as, as other nights, but then I noticed ten hairline fracture lines in the glass. He moved more than I thought. He's making his move to get in. My eyes are starting to fade in what was already a dark room. They're getting heavy. I don't know how much longer I can stay awake. My lids are fluttering so much it's like watching an old film. Watching him fade slowly in and out of frame. My voice is starting to tremble as I count down and my hands begin to rattle the flashlight. This is no time for panic. This game has rules. I have a system. As long as I play by the rules and remain vigilant, I can live to play another day. I will not lose tonight. Three, two, one, black. Black? I've closed my eyes. I realize after what seemed like a mere two seconds, but I couldn't be sure. My flashlight was laying on the wood floor next to me. I'm staring at an empty window. He's gone. Damn it, where did he go? I could see where he huffed his warm breath against the thin, transparent panel. The cracks in the glass were still there, but the window was intact, so at least I know he isn't in the room with me. 
Even if I drifted off to sleep for a second, I'm awake now. My body feels like it's both been set aflame and buried with ice. I feel so numb that I can't move. My wide eyes begin to tear up, setting my tortured and dried eye ablaze. My teeth grit. The strain is proving too much for my head. It's throbbing. I want to cry out, but I can't. I keep my eyes open, fixed on the window. Being able to see him there had been some source of comfort, but now he's gone. Where is he? I bring up my shaking hands to bury my eyes in them, rubbing them dry. For a second, I can't see. Click. My flashlight moves across the floor and towards the door leading to the hallway. It's cracked open just slightly, not enough to even see through the crack. I keep fixated on the door, waiting for it to open more, but nothing happens. I quickly shoot my eyes back to the window. Maybe he was trying to distract me. I shoot my light back to the door and, ah, but there, the familiar needle-tipped fingers had slithered in from the other side of the slightly opened bedroom door. I watch his almost glowing pale fingers start to fade as my eyes begin to shut. I've lost. Tonight is the last game. I inhale deeply, turn off my flashlight, and set it on the floor next to me. I let the tension in my neck go and let my head fall back against the wall. I knew it was over, but I had a system to stick by. So for the last time, three, two. So I guess they're eaten or I don't know. See, this is something that's always not bothered me about scary movies, but when you're creating a character, you want to create some sort of an idea of what might happen when this thing gets you. Now this, clearly, is creepy. It would creep me out if I saw it, and I'd wonder what it would do to me. But like, really, what is it going to do? Is it going to scratch you? Does it, is it going to eat you? I don't know. I don't know. If you have ideas, let me know. Now, this next story is um, a true story based on true events. And it's a long one. So buckle in. And it looks like it's also um, about, I mean, obviously, it's a true. <laughs> I was going to say it's about a real place. If it's a true story, it's going to be about a real place. <laughs> and think that one through. Okay. Uh, it's called The Hot Springs. A couple important things to note before I tell you about my experience. You are more than welcome to go check this place out for yourselves. Do a quick Google search of Diamond Fork Hot Springs, Utah, and you'll get hundreds of results telling you exactly how to get there. For those of you that are curious, it's about an hour and a half drive from Salt Lake City. I would not, however, recommend that you go by yourself. Or at night. Definitely googling this later. Another important thing to know is that where my experience took place in the land surrounding has a significant history, especially related to the Native Americans. Unfortunately, much of the recorded history is about the exceptionally bloody conflicts between these Native Americans and early settlers. Um, 
and I think settlers is the wrong word there. Um, <clears throat> anyway, just a couple examples are Black Hawk's War, the Provo War, and the Walker War. I also wish it to be known that I am quite fond of Native Americans and what I know of their culture, and I have absolutely nothing against them. In fact, I have several close friends that have Native American heritage. I'm just, that doesn't exclude, anyway, that's another thing. Um, I do not mean to offend or accuse by telling my experience, and I mention this side note only because of the possible link between my experience and various legends about so-called skinwalkers. I will provide the facts and you can make of it what you'd like. That being said, the Diamond Fork Hot Springs are a gem nestled a good half an hour drive and subsequent hike up the canyon and away from the city. I had been there several times before with my wife, Kenna, or before my wife, Kenna, and I decided to take a Monday off and hike there again this past winter. The springs are quite popular, and during the summer, they tend to draw a large crowd of college students, uh, scout troops, and old men that are overly fond of publicly bathing nude. No shame. That's me. I said no shame. I had gone in the winter with my cousin several years previous, and at that point, we had the springs to ourselves, so I convinced Kenna to spend one of her days off hiking to them with me. January 11th, 2016. We began our hike just before 1 p.m., thinking that this would give us ample time to hike to the springs, enjoy soaking for a couple hours, and get back to the car before sundown. I had hiked to the springs in the winter before and knew that each winter the road is blocked off to cars well before the trail to the springs begins. This is due to snow, though honestly it seemed to me like it wouldn't be hard for a plow to go the additional four miles. I guess I forgot just how far four miles is when you're walking through snow and ice. Nevertheless, we walked through the gate um, the road was still open to hikers and snowshoers and began our hike. We enjoyed ourselves and took breaks about every 30 minutes, each break thinking that the trailhead must be around the next bend in the road. Shortly before our first break, I noticed a hole. Cave would be too generous a term. In the side of the mountain to the left of us, it was obviously a man-made hole as it was covered by a section of chain link fence but it still perked my curiosity. It was only about 30 feet from the trail, so I told my wife I'd like to check it out, and she happily came up with me. Upon further investigation, we found that it was not much more than a boring hole. We used our flashlights to shine as far back into the hole as we could, but all we could see is some abandoned piping. After taking another five-minute break, we continued on further into the canyon. We walked and walked and walked. The time wore on, and much earlier than we would have liked, our feet began to ache. I was beginning to regret insisting that we go on this adventure when finally we turned around a bend and saw the bridge that marks the trailhead. With newfound energy, we rushed over to the sign with information about the various trails. At this point, it was about 3 o'clock, and I was beginning to become a bit concerned about having enough light to make it back before sundown. But we were already this far, and we weren't going to turn around before spending at least some time soaking in these springs. Plus, we had flashlights, just in case, and the way back to the car, albeit lengthy, was very straightforward. 
So we pushed forward, knowing that we were well over halfway there. Our strength seemed to diminish at an exponential rate, which was concerning because we'd have over a five-mile hike back to the car. But I knew that we'd make it back somehow, perhaps with more frequent breaks than on the way up. We soon began to smell the sulfur odor that was a sure sign that we were getting very close. We ended up seeing some bikers as we approached the signs. They were riding some of those fat bikes that have the huge tires and are designed for the snow. We were happy to see them coming towards us as this meant we were leave- they were leaving and we would probably have the springs to ourselves. After letting them pass, we hiked another 10 minutes or so and finally reached the springs. I cannot explain how heavenly of a sight to behold those springs were. The combination of the milky blue water, the red rock with snow on it to our left and our right, the blue sky above, and the waterfall about 100 yards ahead were too much to take in at once. And best of all, we had it all to ourselves. We quickly quickly stripped down to our swimsuits and hopped in. It felt incredible, truly like stepping into healing waters. We relaxed for a bit and our noses quickly adjusted to the sulfur smell. And fortunately, our bodies also adjusted to the water temperature and before long, the water didn't feel as amazingly warm as it did at first. There are a few places between the first spring and the waterfall further along the trail where water bubbles out of the earth and flows into a pool of its own, so I figured I'd check out a couple of the other pools and see if I could find a hotter one. I managed to climb up the runoff of some of the other pools, thinking that this would save my feet from freezing. It did, but in the process, my feet slipped several times on the mossy rocks and were fairly banged up by the time I reached the other pools. To my delight, these pools were significantly warmer, so I rushed back and beckoned my wife to come join me in these warmer springs. After a brisk 30-second dash, we jumped in and I yelped briefly as I realized I may have jumped a bit too close to the mouth of the spring. We soaked and enjoyed ourselves for about an hour. We ate some of the chips and granola bars that we had packed in, and I downed a good deal of cherry Coke. Perfect drink for a hike, right? At this point, I had accepted the fact that for at least some of the hike back, we would be in darkness and have to use our flashlights. From the springs, it was hard to tell just how much sun had set, since there are mountains rising steeply to both the east and the west, and the sun is only visible overhead for about five hours in the middle of the day. At about five o'clock, we decided we really needed to get going, as much as we were dreading the hike back, so we dried off, took a few pictures, and headed out. Shortly after beginning the hike back, I realized that my feet were immensely sore and that my legs were already begging for a break. I mentioned this to Kenna, and she mentioned that she was feeling the same. I could tell that we were both in a mood to complain, so I determined to try and keep the mood light and the conversation lively to distract us from our discomfort. Things got very dark very fast. We hadn't even reached the halfway point from the springs to the main road when we started seeing stars above us. We, a couple flashlights We brought a couple flashlights with us, I think is what they meant, right? Um, But I figured we should put off using them as we could since I had just grabbed them from my parents' house and had no idea how long they'd last. 
I also hadn't thought to bring extra batteries. All was well, though, as our eyes had adjusted with the darkness and making out the snowpack trail wasn't too difficult. I can already see their mistake here. I could tell that Kenna was getting as tired as I was, so in an attempt to distract ourselves from our weariness, I asked her about a scary movie that she had seen with a friend a few days previous. As she told me the plot, I began to feel a bit anxious and jumpy, but nothing more than what would be expected. It was partway through Kenna's explanation of the plot, though, that I felt a surreal, sinking feeling. It was as though my insides were being squeezed and I was descending into a state of panic. I generally don't get overly scared when reading or hearing scary stories, especially if I know it's just a movie, but this was different. I determined that this must be due to our circumstances, being isolated in the mountains far from anyone else with darkness surrounding us on all sides. From the beginning of the sinking feeling to attempting to justify it and brush it off was only a matter of seconds. I hadn't realized it, but Kenna had paused her explanation and hiked in silence for those few seconds, then hastily wrapped it up and moved to another subject. I was secretly glad that she had finished so quickly and figured that some discussion on a lighter note would probably push out the overwhelming feeling of panic and paranoia that had overtaken me. It was about at this point that I began to hear the whispering. There's a river that runs next to the trail and down about five feet in most places, and I tried to brush the noise off as the sound of rushing water. The thing that made me especially uneasy, though, was that the noise wasn't just coming from the river to the left of us. It was coming from the right and from behind as well. Kenna had gone silent, and again, I hadn't paid much attention as I was quite distracted by the noises. They started out very quiet, almost too quiet to even notice over the sound of the river, and slowly grew louder. They never grew loud enough to completely get rid of the doubt that was already there, but I was sensing a change in Kenna's disposition as well. Shortly thereafter, she said my name, which nearly made me jump out of my skin, and asked if I'd be okay taking a break. I tried to appear calm and said I would, though the feeling of panic was still as strong as ever. It seemed to scream that we needed to get away from where we are now. We sat in the snow and didn't talk much. I think I mentioned something about how we must be getting close to the road and that then at least we'd be on a wide paved road rather than this thin dirt trail. I didn't dare ask Kenna if she was feeling or hearing anything, in part because I didn't want to sound like the scary movie plot was getting to me, and more in part because I didn't want her to confirm that the weird stuff going on wasn't just inside my head. Unfortunately, the whisperings hadn't stopped while we rested. In fact, they seemed more real than ever. I was getting antsy and again anxious to be at least to at least be making our way towards our car in sure safety. I suppose it was more a desire to be making our way away from whatever was behind and around us. At this point, I began to shiver, and pointing this out to Kenna, I suggested we keep pushing onward. I knew that I wasn't too cold, at least not cold enough to make me shiver like I was. Put simply, I was overwhelmingly terrified of the darkness around us and what it contained. We hopped up and continued onward. All the time, I was hoping and praying that we would see the bridge marking the trailhead and at least make it off of this dirt trail and back onto pavement. 
I knew that we would have a several mile walk back to the car after crossing the bridge, but there was something comforting about the thought of being on the wider road. As we came upon a rather steeper part of the trail, I, I recognized it as a landmark that was very close to the bridge. I decided we should pull out our flashlights for this portion. I didn't want either of us slipping on ice or tripping on a route and falling into the river below and among whatever else might be there. We each took a flashlight and I decided to go behind Kenna just in case she started sliding backwards. As we started climbing up, I looked at I looked down at the path and noticed the strange tracks that the bikes had left in the snow. I also noticed some other strange tracks that were going around and over the bike tracks. It looked like a small party of people with bare feet had gone through with a pack of large dogs. My mind was trying to put things together quickly but was struggling. Those bikers had been the only people we'd seen but these foot and paw prints were certainly from people that had come after the bikers. Another strange thing was that these prints were not only on the trail, but were left deep in the snow to either side, seeming to go off in random directions. Some tracks come to the trail, others left it, and everywhere there were large paw prints mixed with human footprints. At first, this came as a relief to me. My first thought was that there must be some very dedicated campers who had decided to bring their dogs along somewhere close by. The thought of some tough, burly campers nearby in these forsaken mountains was like a ray of light to my mind. Then a point of confusion began to form. Small at first, but then very concerning. Campers don't go hiking around in the snow on bare feet, and this point was much too far from the springs for someone to be walking around without shoes. This thought process, from terrified to hopeful back to terrified, and concerned happened within a matter of seconds. Kenna had stopped and turned to me and pointed out the prints in the snow as well. I tried to brush it off with a chuckle and a, yeah, what the heck are people thinking? But the look of concern on her face only confirmed that I was not alone in my worried thoughts. The panic was again overcoming me, and I wished more than ever that this whispering would stop. All I could say is, let's go, and we pushed on with even more determination than before. I kept looking behind us and every time expecting to see something following. Each time before I looked back, my stomach would do a flip, but not once did I see anything suspicious. We kept our flashlights on for the rest of the hike out, and at long last we saw the bridge ahead. We quickly crossed it and without a word continued on to the main road. Roughly four more miles and we would be safe and sound in the car. To my immense relief, the whispering seemed to quiet down now that we were on the road. My legs and feet were aching like the dickens, so I asked Kenna if we could take another quick break. She obliged, and I very quickly regretted making the suggestion. The river still flowed by the road, but it was not nearly as close as it was to the dirt path, and therefore didn't mask any sounds. At this point, the whispers, though quieter than they had been on the dirt trail, were very clear and undeniably existent. I stared back to the bridge, wishing that this maddening noise and accompanying sense of extreme paranoia would go away. As I looked to Kenna to see how she was reacting to the menacing noise, I noticed she had put her head in her hands and seemed to be shaking. I put my arm around her shoulder and pressed my head up against hers. 
And as I looked down, I froze. The snow we were sitting on was covered in human footprints, along with those enormous paw prints. Again, there seemed to be no method or destination in mind for whoever or whatever had been stomping around here. I shined my flashlight with a shaky hand in each direction, trying to figure out where these things had gone. I followed one set of footprints that ascended up the side of the hill to our right and saw that the human prints ended and those huge animal prints picked up right where they had left off. I felt as if I was descending into madness. I wanted to cry. I began to feel angry towards these things. Was this some sick joke? I wanted to scream and call out these things to stop messing around, get on with whatever they were going to do to us. More than anything, I wanted this all to end. With hot tears stinging my face and with this newfound anger giving me a boost of energy, I pulled Kenna up by her hand and without a word, we continued at a brisk pace down the road. I could not shake the darkness. This was so much darker than anything I'd experienced. It was horrible and overwhelming. Even the stars above seemed extremely dim. The darkness was pressing in all around us, above us, below us, and worst of all, it seemed to be inside us. Strange thoughts entered my mind, wondering what acts of evil could bring such a feeling to this place. Wondering if we had done anything to bring this upon ourselves. Was this some sacred place that we were trespassing on? Had we done something to offend these creatures? Whatever the case, I hated this area and felt that I was beginning to give in to the evil ambient darkness that seemed to be consuming us. I wanted to give up. The thought entered my mind that embracing this evil might be the only way out. Kenna saved me from my own thoughts. Her sweet voice pierced my dark thoughts and halted this internal spiraling. She had stopped and softly said my name. After taking a second to recover, I asked how she was holding out. She pointed off to the right, toward where her flashlight was shining on a patch of juniper bushes. Again, that invisible hand seemed to clench my stomach and I froze momentarily. A pair of eyes were reflecting back at us. I tried to regain my composure, and after a few seconds, I noticed that the eyes remained unblinking. I quickly realized they were that of a dead animal. The awkward angle and lack of movement gave that away. As I continued to stare, I realized that this was not just a single dead animal. There were five or so dead deer, and what made my stomach really churn was the amount of blood covering a large patch of the road. I turned away as the sight made me lightheaded and shifted my focus to the ground right in front of us. Again, the snow was covered in these cursed footprints, this time painted with blood. I'll spare you the details, but let me say it seemed that these creatures had enjoyed themselves immensely at this horrid spot, and there were several trails of blood streaking the snow. Still focused on the ground, I led us forward and to the left around this horrible scene of carnage, averting my eyes from the worst of it. I kept expecting to encounter the smell of rotting flesh, but it never came. I guess the deer carcasses were too fresh, and the cold weather probably helped too. Soon thereafter, we passed a campground, a landmark that meant we were getting close to our blessed car. It was at this point that the hollering began. When I heard the first shout, a chill went down my whole body, and I felt sick to my stomach. 
This was an inhuman shout, and it wasn't far behind us. I looked back, nearly tweaking my neck in the process, but still, I couldn't see anything. It was indescribably terrifying. I wished that I could see something so that at least I would know what we were up against. Anything I felt would be better than being kept in the state of knowing something was there but not knowing what it was. We hurried forward toward the car, our legs and feet protesting every step and the hollering seemed to grow even closer and louder. Every 20 seconds or so, I would quickly scan to the left, right, and behind. Each time, I hoped that I would see something to relieve me from this deranging state of not knowing. Still, I was terrified to the core of what I might see. Finally, after hours of wishing we were here, we rounded a bend and saw our beautiful car. Never in my life was I so happy to see it. My moment of joy was cut short, however, as I did one of my brief scans of our surroundings. Upon looking behind us, I saw several dark figures moving slowly towards us. A few had their heads raised, and I wondered what I had been thinking when I wished that I could see what these creatures were. Each of them were human-like in form, though they were unusually tall and walking on all fours. They were all covered in thick reddish-brown hair and had bright red eyes that reflected perfectly in the dim light of my flashlight. I will never forget those eyes. What terrified me to the very center and still haunts me to this day is the expression they all wore. Each that had their head up was staring right at me as they slowly crawled forward, and they were each wide-eyed wearing a toothy grin. It felt as if they were boring inside me with their stares, and I was certain we were going to die. At this point, I wasn't afraid of death. I was instead terrified of what the alternative would be once they caught up to us. I could see an excitement and twisted joy in their faces as if they were playing a favorite game of theirs, feeding off of our fear. And oh, how I wish I could describe the blackness that surrounded them. It was a blackness that was felt as much as it was seen. It was horribly fascinating, almost even enticing, but those terrifying creatures were so vile that at no point did I consider moving even an inch toward them. At this point, I nearly went berserk. Luckily, Kenna hadn't looked back yet and was marching faithfully on toward the car. When I finally unrooted myself from the spot and found my voice, I cried out to Kenna to run and not look back. I had caught up to her at this point, and she turned to look at me and possibly behind. I screamed, don't! and she seemed startled by my state of mere insanity. She looked forward toward the car again, and we both sprinted straight for it. Adrenaline overcoming weariness, we jumped in, slammed the doors, and I fumbled with the keys and let off the clutch quicker than I intended, nearly killing the engine. The darkness seemed to be thickening by the second. As I unintentionally peeled out, flinging mud and snow all over, Kenna turned around and screamed. I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the creatures mere feet from our car. Their sick faces were ecstatic with excitement, and their wide grins made me shout and put the pedal to the floor. Soon, we were zooming along the canyon at about 40 miles per hour, very dangerous for a small winding road, 
and somehow these fiends were keeping up with us. Everything about them was incredibly unnerving, from their horrible gallop to those perverted smiles. I prayed that we would reach a straightaway where we could go faster and perhaps by some miracle outrun these beasts. Out of the blue, the darkness seemed to lift. The stars shone more brightly than they had all night, and I was overcome with relief. I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the creatures, now far behind us, leaping up the sides of the hills to our left. It was still a sickening sight, but somehow I knew that they were done toying with us at least. We drove in silence for several minutes until we reached the highway. What a sweet relief it was to see other humans. Seeing the warm glow of their headlights was like walking up to a hot fire after being cold. I turned to Kenna and saw that she was crying, and I, in turn, began to cry. We cried and hugged, but remained silent as we sat there next to the highway. There was nothing to say at this point. Shortly after getting back on the highway, I noticed I was quite nauseous and shaky. I pulled over and threw up and felt much better afterwards. At long last, the paranoia left me, and I felt like a new person. We got home around 7.30. We turned on all the lights, shut and locked the door, and stayed up all night. Neither of us wanted to sleep, so we stayed up holding each other tight and trying to distract ourselves with movies. Neither of us talked about what we had gone through until well into the next day when the sun was high and everything was bright. I could tell neither of us wanted to be the one to bring it up. I felt that if we talked about it, we would solidify that it really happened. But I finally brought it up, and it was almost a relief to have it out in the open. We've told a select few about this experience, and much of it is still quite confusing to us. We still have some questions that may forever remain unanswered, such as what in the world were those creatures? What did we do to warrant their pursuit? They were certainly the quickest creatures we've ever seen, so why, did they why didn't they catch up to us? What would have happened if we tried to confront them? All we know is there is a serious evil presence up that canyon, and if you don't believe me, you know where to find it. And that is from someone named Tyler T. Holy moly, that was a really, really long story. And I have no idea what I would do if I was in that position. Like, first of all, I would have planned my trip a little bit better so that I wasn't hiking in the dark. Um, also, does it really take hours to hike five miles? I, I don't think it does, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Either way, either way, um... That's fucking scary. <laughs> um, okay. Let me see what we've got next. Okay. Okay. Um, so this one is called World's Best School Psychologist. When I was 12, I came to the conclusion that everyone in the world, including my own family, was against me. I was never a problem child, but my parents sure treated me like one. For example, I used to need to be home by 5 p.m. every day. This clearly restricted my amount of playtime outdoors. I wasn't allowed to have friends over to play at the house, nor was I allowed to go over to anyone else's. I had to finish homework directly after I came home from school, no matter how long it took. 
My parents refused to buy me video games and forced me to read books and then write a book report on them to prove I actually read it. Now, even though those rules listed above were quite frustrating to me as a child, they aren't what upset me most. What really hurt me was the lack of compassion on behalf of my parents. My mother was a bitter woman who always made me feel guilty about accidents or mistakes I've made. My father only knew one emotion, frustration. The only time he spoke to me was when he screamed at me for receiving poor test scores or beat me for misbehaving. But enough about them. Let's talk about my school's psychologist. For his own privacy, we will call him Dr. Tanner. Like most junior high schools, a psychologist is always available on campus during school hours to assist any students in need of counseling, whether it's emotional, academic, social, behavioral, etc. To be honest, I've never seen any students talking with Dr. Tanner. Every day I would walk past his office on my way to the cafeteria and peek through his door's little window. He would always be alone in there working on some paperwork. I guess that most kids were too afraid to speak about their problems to an adult who was practically a stranger. For this reason, it took me three weeks to muster enough courage to go into his office. March 2nd, 1993 was the day I decided to voice my troubles to Dr. Tanner. During lunch break, I stood in front of his office door and knocked. Through the window, I could see him raise his head, smile, and motion for me to come in. I did. He greeted me by introducing himself and asking for my name. Dr. Tanner was a very soft-spoken man who seemed to radiate kindness. In less than 30 minutes, I rambled to Dr. Tanner about how mean my parents were to me and how they didn't care about me at all. After a while, my voice began to quiver and I stopped speaking. The psychologist listened patiently to my whole spiel, arms folded and head nodding. I half expected him to begin talking about how everything I had just said was untrue and that my parents loved me dearly and blah, 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 but he didn't. Dr. Tanner leaned towards me with a grin on his face and said, you know, I'm the best school psychologist in the world. I promise we'll fix this. I rolled my eyes. Okay, but how? I asked. I have my ways, he replied. I'm a man of my word. I promise that within just one month, the relationship between you and your parents will change for the better. Forever. After a brief pause, he continued, Although I do need you to make me a promise. You have to promise me that you'll come back to my office after school tomorrow and that you won't tell anyone that we had this conversation today. It'll be our little secret. I promised. The following day, I returned to Dr. Tanner after school. It was around 4 p.m. when I entered his office. After a warm welcome, he asked me to have a seat in front of his desk once again. Upon sitting down, I watched Dr. Tanner close the blinds of the door's tiny window. There, he smiled. Now we have all the privacy we need. We began to talk about my likes and interests, my favorite subjects in school, my least favorite teachers, and things of the like. About an hour into the conversation, Dr. Tanner offered me a soft drink. I gladly took the offer, considering my parents never allowed me to drink soda. 
Dr. Tanner reached over to his mini-fridge and fidgeted around before setting down two open cans of soda on the desk. Afterwards, we continued to talk about what was going on in my life, but it wasn't long before I passed out from whatever drugs Dr. Tanner placed in my drink. It took me a minute or so to adjust my blurred vision upon waking, and when it did, I had no idea what to think. I was handcuffed to a bed, and my mouth was sealed with duct tape. I immediately began to panic, squirming and tugging at the cuffs, but gave up soon after. My eyes widened in disbelief after looking around the room. There were posters of superheroes pinned up along the walls and photographs of famous athletes on shelves. In the middle of the room was an old television and Super Nintendo, various game cartridges stacked alongside it. I didn't know what to think. Here I am in a room filled with items most kids would die to play with. I would have probably cried from joy hadn't I been handcuffed to a bed. My stomach sank again once again as the door opened and Dr. Tanner walked inside. He sat down on the edge of the bed. Now listen, he said. Remember that I'm here to help you and I would never hurt you, okay? Dr. Tanner gently removed the tape from my mouth and then the cuffs from my hands. My first instinct was to begin crying, but something about Dr. Tanner made me feel safe. He smiled at me. You're going to be staying here for a while, he continued, and during this time, you're allowed to play with any toys in this room while I'm here. But when I leave the house, I'll need to cuff one of your hands back to the bed. You can still watch television, but I want you to only watch the news channel while I'm away. I sat in silence, still trying to process the information he had given me. So, Dr. Tanner yipped, slapping me on the knee. You go ahead and knock yourself out. I'll be back when it's time for dinner. He got up from the bed, walked across the room, and clicked the TV's power button before locking the door behind him. Several more minutes passed before I realized that Dr. Tanner wasn't joking. All that was left for me to do was boot up the Nintendo and play Mario until nightfall. At about 7 p.m., Dr. Tanner returned to the room carrying two plates of mashed potatoes and chicken strips. I finally gathered up the courage to ask him how long I'd be staying in this room. Well, about a month, he replied. Give or take a few weeks. I just have some work I need to do. The following morning, I awoke to Dr. Tanner's hand patting my head. Hey, bud, you don't have to wake up right now if you don't want, but I'm going to need to put this back on. He whispered, clamping the... Oh, he was whispering. I should have whispered that. Um, clamping the cold steel handcuff onto my wrist. I gazed up at him. He was wearing a collared shirt and slacks, a coat draped over his shoulder, and a suitcase by his side. He looked just how he always did when I saw him around school. Before leaving, he placed the TV remote next to me and told me to turn it on and watch the news. The first thing I saw upon turning it on was a breaking news segment. An important-looking police officer stood at a podium surrounded by people with microphones. It, I happened to begin viewing halfway through his speech. A statewide Amber Alert has been issued as of this morning. We have several investigators working towards identifying potential abductors, but as of right now, there's not much evidence. Faculty members state that the boy had been last seen around 4 or 5 in the evening on... I began to feel nauseous as a photograph of me appeared on the screen. It was my yearbook picture from last year. 
Captions for the photograph displayed by name and age, my school and my town. Above my picture were alternating titles. FBI begins search for child and kidnapping suspect unknown and potential runaway. The live footage continued and two figures I soon recognized as my mom and dad stepped up to the podium. Both appeared to have reddened eyes, tears streamed down my mother's face as she took hold of a microphone. I'd never seen so much emotion come from my mother before as she wept on live television, stuttering on sentences such as, please return my baby back to me, and I'm so sorry, and please come home to us. When my father took the microphone, I nearly expected his attitude to be stone cold, but he too had tears in his eyes. He pleaded to the world to bring his son home safely, and lastly begged for my forgiveness. I know I haven't been the best father, but God damn it, do I wish I had been now. Please bring my boy back. I turned the power off shortly after. My emotions were mixed, for I had never once seen my father cry. I felt miserable that my parents were being put through so much, but at the same time, I felt relief. I now know how much mom and dad loved me. Nearly four weeks have passed, and Dr. Tanner has been treating me with the utmost respect. He leaves me in the morning, cuffed to the bed frame, but returns in the afternoon to eat lunch and dinner with me, talk, and play video games. I never would have guessed how good Dr. Tanner was at Monopoly and Scrabble. But one morning, when Dr. Tanner woke me before heading off to work, I noticed a stern look on his face. I also realized that it was three hours earlier than when he usually wakes me. You need to watch the news today. No exceptions. I want you to keep the television on all day and pay close attention to it, he stated grimly. I, of course, complied and watched him exit the room. About two hours later, a breaking news segment interrupted the toothpaste commercial I was watching. The title, Human Remnants Found. Two staunch-looking men in suits stood beside one another and began speaking. We are displeased to bring up such unfortunate news this morning regarding our missing child case from earlier this month. One of the men bowed his head while the other one speaking shuffled through some papers. He continued, Remains of a boy have been found in a garbage bag beneath a highway overpass. The body appears to be that of a child, although not much of it is left. The body has been decapitated and much of it has been burnt to ash and bone. The screen shifted over to a helicopter view of the freeway. Dozens of police cars gathered near the bottom of a tall overpass. The man's voice could still be heard. Within the bag, police found a junior high school identification card labeled as such. The screen showed the school ID card I'd always kept in my backpack. The plastic was sort of melted away, but my photograph and name were intact. After the two men dismissed themselves, the camera panned over to my parents. They were sitting among reporters. My mother's face held a painful grimace and my father sulked his head down to his knees. I shut the television off. Dr. Tanner returned home very late. He hurried into the room, unlocked my cuffs, and placed a bottle of fizzy water into my hand. He placed his hand on my shoulders and smiled. I made you a promise, didn't I? I nodded, tears squeezing their way out of my eyes. You need to make me a promise again, he whispered. He told me that I needed to drink all the water in the bottle. It would help me sleep, and that from here on, I am never to tell anyone that I ever met him. I promised. 
I told you I'm the best school psychologist in the world, didn't I? And he was right. I awoke later that night to find myself lying in the middle of a park, stars shining brightly across the night sky. I recognized the park. It wasn't too far from school. A mile or so down the road, I saw my house. The lights were off inside, but I could make out my father sitting on the step leading to the front door. I hesitantly called out to him. He lifted his head slowly, but when he saw it was me, he sprang to his feet, ran towards me, arms open, yelling my name. My mother erupted from the house behind him. Dr. Tanner was right. Things have changed with my family and I. My parents smile more often and treat me lovingly. I could not ask for a more perfect ending. Every now and then I see Dr. Tanner on campus, walking to and from his office. Rarely do we ever make eye contact, let alone speak to one another, but sometimes he'll shoot me a wink and a smile. I'll always keep my promise to him and pretend I never met him, but there will always be one question forever floating in my mind. Who did Dr. Tanner decapitate and throw off the overpass? Now that would make a good horror movie or thriller, or whatever it would be. Not exactly scary, but creepy. Um, I, when I was first reading this, I kind of thought it was going in a different direction, and I was like, oh, I'm not reading that story. That's not a story we need to share. But then when I read the ending, I thought, well, mm, okay, that's a little different. So I hope you liked that. Um, I'm going to do one more. Now this one, I think it's a popular story. Um, you may already know it, but it's one of my favorites because I just love the idea of it. Um, but our final story is called The Story of the Russian Sleep Experiment. <clears throat> Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so that gas didn't kill them since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they had only microphones and five-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows in the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, cots to sleep on, but no bedding, running water, and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noticed that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led to where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternating, alternately whispering to the microphones in one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think that they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. 
At first, the researchers suspected that this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working since they thought it impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the fifth day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more responses using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed of the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of them in life. The root... The food rations past day five had not been so much as touched. They were, ooh, there were chunks of meat from the dead test subject's thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth as the researchers initially thought. Closer examinations of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed, while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. 
The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the ribcage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives if you count the ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than ten times the human dose of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arm of one doctor. When Hart was seen yeah, when Hart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he bled out to the point there was more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word more over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. Their surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility. The two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative that they had given to him to prepare for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four-inch-wide leather strap on one wrist, even though the weight of a 200-pound soldier was holding that wrist as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subjects that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn and he had broken nine bones in the struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first one of the group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery and he, was, he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought, over, brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested, reluctantly, that they try the surgery without it, and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. 
The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically possible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she hadn't that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad and fetched, fetched, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple. Keep cutting. Ugh. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well, although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves, why they had ripped out their own guts, and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given. I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced and they were placed back into the chamber, awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, a former KGB agent, instead saw potential. He wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly ejected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were getting the gas again. It was obvious that at this point, all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the leather bonds with all his might, his first left and then right and then left again for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brain waves in surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering from brain death before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hit the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of a deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brain waves showed the same flat lines as one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside as well as three researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point blank between the eyes and then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. Goodness. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and research team flood the room. 
I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man strapped to the table. What are you, he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within all of you, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out so nearly free. Ha! <laughs> and there's your, uh, your stories for Friday the 13th. <laughs> um, like I said, it was going to be a little different. Um, a little more gory than normal. I apologize for that if you don't like gory. And if you do, there you go. I delivered. Fantastic, right? <laughs> Now, I do have to say, like, about that last story, you can't go more than a few days without sleep. You will go insane. You go, I think I've talked about this before, your body will put your, your brain through a REM cycle while you're awake. So you will hallucinate. All the rest of that, I mean, it's all fiction, I would assume. But um, makes for a very fascinating story, and I like the idea of, the madness that lives within all of us. I mean, I don't, but I do. If you get what I mean. <laughs> but yeah, that's the episode. I hope you liked it. Um, if you want to share a story for next month's Listener Stories episode, where I promise it will be me and Maria reading your stories and they won't be as heavy as some of these, um, unless you can really come through, you can go to our webpage, thenewwitches.com, and we have a contact page where you can submit your story or you can email us at thenewwitches at gmail.com. We, we love any story, anything that you want to share, anything at all, doesn't matter if it's super short, really long, um, we'll read it and we'll love it. Uh, you can... You guys, I've never done this before. I've never ended an episode. <laughs> you can find us on social media. Uh, Facebook, we're the New Witches Podcast. Instagram and Twitter, you can find us at the New Witches. Um, we're on Patreon, the New Witches. I think it's just the New Witches on Patreon.com, um, where we have several tiers where you can support us. We absolutely love our Patreon supporters. They're amazing. Um as a Patreon member, you get a free reading from me, depending on what level. It may be something super basic or it may be more complex. Um, Marie and I are going to be adding some bonus episodes, which if you liked our last one, our colder inside chat, uh, there'll probably be episodes a little bit more like that. Um, yeah, I think I got that all covered. Um, we will be back in not a few days, but not a full week for our next episode, um, which I believe is a true crime paranormal episode. So that's it. Uh, stay witchy and keep it creepy, everybody. Bye.